0: Heavenly Father, as we come to this time of receiving your word, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you have for us. God, as we hear in your word, we pray that it would not be a distant facts from history, but instead that it would be a very present relationship that we understand. And God, as we look at the story of your people in Israel, I pray that we would not be condemning and self-righteous in our view of them, but instead we would see in their story, our story. And God, as we look at your covenant faithfulness, we pray that we would see how your faithfulness extends from generation to generation. God, I ask that you would help us this morning to be moved by your word in such a way that it would not only have effect on our hearts, but that it would cause us to move toward another, and that we would tell the story of your faithfulness from our lives to the life of our children and to the lives of those that you have placed in our spiritual care. And God, may we be the kind of believers that pass on the, the things that have been handed to us from one generation to the next. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, it's my privilege to preach from Psalm 78. So if you'll turn in your Bibles there, and we will be looking at the first eight verses this morning, which are the introduction to this longer psalm. So I'm not going to be expositing all 72 verses this morning, although I will be drawing upon things that are recorded in them. As we turn to this scripture, I want you to be thinking about the stories that you tell. The stories that you tell. All of us are defined in one way or another by stories. When we first meet one another, we inevitably tell something about ourselves through a story. And in some ways, both helpful and in others, unhelpful, we come to define ourselves by those stories. Some of us see ourselves as the heroes of every story that we tell, that we're triumphant, And that we are a conqueror, that we are a winner. Others of us see ourselves in story as perennial losers. People who've been on the wrong side of things, who have received the short end of the stick. And as you listen to those stories, they are stories of doom or disappointment. And good or bad, we allow those stories to define ourselves. Well, a few weeks ago, our family was on vacation together, and at the start of our time, on Monday morning, I received a shocking text message. It's the kind of message you don't want to receive under ordinary circumstances, but certainly not when you're beginning your vacation. You see, our children's piano teacher, Dee Thielen, had suffered a heart attack that Monday. She had fallen down some stairs in her home, and suddenly died it was shocking it was one of those brief text messages that changed the directory of that day it certainly affected our thoughts it brought tears to our eyes it continues to bring tears to my eyes only one month prior to that text message we had been celebrating my daughter madeline's piano recital with d and had a great time as we always did Yet at Dee's celebration of life service at the end of that week, which we were able to return from our vacation and attend, family and friends bore witness to Dee's faith in Christ and her faithfulness to her family and to her church community. God gave Dee 76 years on this earth and 50 of those years as a Christian. She had devoted herself to serving Christ and his people, And she taught hundreds of students the piano, and she discipled multiple generations of women. Dee's Christian testimony shined brightly at her funeral. Her testimony served as the story of her life. In fact, years ago, she had written her testimony for her family, her friends, and her acquaintances. She had been saved as a young adult at 26 years old, and she could not stop telling the story of God's grace. She even gave copies of her testimony to her students' families, and she kept copies of her testimony on her desk and her testimony was handed out at her funeral and i have a copy of it here today called ruby red slippers and it is an incredible testimony of how god saved this woman and how god worked grace in her life interrupting her plans and her husband's plans and setting her life on a new direction because of the gospel that story defined d And it affected everything that she did with her students, with her family, with her three children, her 11 grandchildren, and 14 great-grandchildren, not to mention her countless spiritual children that she had discipled. And as Dee shared the story of God's grace, she was quick not to make herself the hero, but to make Christ the hero. Because after all, Christ had saved her. Well, this morning as we look at Psalm 78, we're going to see another kind of testimony of Asaph as he is sharing with God's covenant community Israel of God's faithfulness from generation to generation. In fact, Psalm 78 retells the historical events of Israel from the time of their slavery in Egypt until David's reign over God's people. This psalm describes God's never-ending mercy and grace amid Israel's pattern of sinful unbelief and rebellious disobedience. Psalm 78 underscores the story of God's faithfulness to his covenant people despite their persistent unfaithfulness. And just as Dee has recorded her testimony for others to, sh- to receive and to be affected by. Asaph has recorded here the psalm that infects us to see the faithfulness of God. And through this psalm, we see repeatedly a call to tell the next generation that God is faithful In fact, as we look at this, I want you to see three things that we need to emphasize as believers. Three arcs to the story that we must tell of our faith in Christ Jesus. And the first arc to that story, my first point this morning, is that we need to remember the story of our sin. Remember the story of our sin. As Asaph is inviting God's people to hear this story, he asks them to listen. He has a captivating story to tell. And this captivating story is told from him to those who would listen because they are responsible to tell others also. Asaph, who led the Levite musicians during David's reign over Israel, is identified with this psalm. He's also identified with 11 other psalms in the Psalter, and these psalms are all a part of Israel's corporate worship. The psalm of Asaph here may or may not have been written by Asaph, but he was the lead musician in the temple where this was used to direct God's people to God's faithfulness. In fact, I would venture to say that This is a psalm that was sung in the temple to remind God's people and to stick in their mind. Now, it's not a catchy song like some of our pop music that has a one or two line hook that we just can't get out of our head. This has 72 verses that we would need to put into our heads and into our hearts. But they were used here to teach God's people of God's faithfulness. Look at the first verse. He says, my people hear my teaching and listen to the words of my mouth. Asaph, or the musicians at least of the temple, were earnest inviting God's people to hear of God's faithfulness. They weren't saying listen to me because I'm a great speaker or I'm the best singer. They were saying listen because of the story that I am about to tell you. The story that transcends the storyteller and that points beyond the storyteller to the one who holds all stories, God himself. As Asaph is reminding the people of Israel of the captivating story of God's grace, he's not going to idealize the past. In fact, he's going to recall that the people of Israel have an embarrassing past with God. Look at verse number two. He says, I will open my mouth with a parable and I will utter hidden things. This parable that Asaph's musicians are staring is a story about God and his people. This is not a parable in the like of Jesus and his teaching in the first century. Instead, this is simply a recounting of what God had done in the life of Israel. And it is a story of Israel's shameful behavior and past. When he says here, I will tell hidden things, the psalmist is not saying that they're secret things. Other translations say dark things, and that is not a reference to things that are sadistic. Instead, he simply means that he's going to share what is shameful or even embarrassing about Israel's past, because God and his faithfulness toward Israel Loved them repeatedly. And yet, in spite of his love and his mighty acts and his wondrous deeds, the people of Israel turned on him over and over again. In fact, Asaph will remember and recount Israel's repeated sinfulness. And he'll share the ugly truth about sin. Look at verse, the end of verse number 2 and verse 3. It says, things from old. Things we have heard and known. Things that our ancestors have told us. The things that Asaph remember involve more than one cycle of Israel's sinfulness. After he gave an introduction and states his purpose in the first eight verses of this psalm, he spends the remaining verses recounting Israel's shameful past. It is a history that is replete with God's incredible work that God rescued them from slavery, that he bore them across the Red Sea, that he brought them into the promised land and drove out the Canaanites, that he provided for them food, manna, and quail, all from his good hand. And yet, no matter what God did, it says repeatedly that the people of Israel sinned against God. In fact, look at some excerpts of the story of Israel's sin in the first cycle, verses nine through 39, where he goes through the story of Israel's redemption and God's work. He says, in spite of all the things that God did for his people, look at their response in verse number 10. They did not keep God's covenant and they refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done the wonders that he had shown them. Can you imagine the words that they forgot what God had done when he had literally acted miraculously on their behalf? That he had literally moved heaven and earth and stopped time, as it were, to gather his people and to bring them out of Egypt and to put them on the land that he had promised Abraham, their forefather. Yet in spite of all God did, look at verse number 17. It says, But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food that they craved. Verse 22, For they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. You see, the problem with Israel is that they were caught in a cycle of sinful disobedience. God had clearly revealed his will to them through his law. He had also spoken to them through his men, men such as Abraham, Moses, Joshua, even other men that would come later, the judges, and then eventually through Saul and his many foibles, and then, as this psalm points out, David. And yet, no matter how God spoke to them, no matter how many times God was faithful to them, they simply kept on sinning. Look at verse number 32. In spite of all of this judgment that God had delivered on them, they kept on sinning in spite of his wonders they did not believe. The people of Israel were caught in a story of sin. They identified themselves certainly as sinners, those who were violating God's covenant and they were repeating a cycle of sin. In fact, as the psalmist begins another telling of God's redemption and God's faithfulness to the people, beginning in verse number 40, we see another pattern of sin that in spite of the miracles that God worked, the plagues against Egypt, the people of Israel continued to rebel. Look at verse number 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. And then again in 56, but they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes like their ancestors. They were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty boo. The people of Israel were sinners. The people of Israel were the objects of God's mercy and God's patience. And yet in spite of his faithfulness to them, in spite of his kindness and his grace to them, they continued to resist him through rebellion and sin. And what was at the root of all of that? Well, I've already read it twice in these verses, and that is they did not believe God. They wanted God for his miracles, They wanted God for his protection and they wanted God for his power but they did not want God for his personal relationship with them. They did not want God to deal with their sin. And this is an unfortunate thing that the people of Israel continued to repeat this cycle of sin and for some of them it was a life of unbelief that they would in turn pass on to the next generation. In fact, this psalm is written so that that cycle could be disrupted and that that story could be broken. Yet I want us to not look at Israel with a self-righteous eye and say, how dare they be so blind and so deaf and so ignorant? How could they experience all the miracles that they did and still not believe? Because the truth is, the story of Israel's sin is also the story of our sin it's the story of my sin and your sin remember every one of us including your pastors are sinners who are saved by grace every one of us is a rebel against god and enslaved in our sin apart from the gospel of jesus no one adds a hint of righteousness to their salvation and there is no one who deserves to be forgiven Christians are people who never forget the story of our sin. Paul says it this way about our sinfulness. He says in Romans 3, As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. One. You see, the story of Israel was a story of rebellion because they were sinners, enslaved in their passions, and they were running far from God. But that's also our story because as Paul writes here, quoting the Psalms, he's saying there is no person alive or no person that has ever lived apart from Christ who is righteous, not a single one. That's a convicting statement. It is a reminder that we are not people who rescue ourselves, people who improve ourselves, and people who better ourselves, but we are people who are sinners in desperate need of grace. I like Paul's words toward the end of his life in 2 Timothy when he said, I am the worst of sinners. Even as Paul continued to grow in the Christian life, He grew in his understanding of his depravity. The fact remains that all of us are sinners in need of God's relentless, never-stopping grace. As we tell our story, we should tell the story of our sin. Not in gratuitous detail that we're Christian exhibitionists who are trying to outdo one another in our sinfulness, But we should tell of our sinfulness and simple honesty that we were rebels who had no desire for God. In fact, we were rebels who resisted God and rebels who rejected God until his grace intervened. And as we tell that story, we don't make ourselves the hero who was someone worthy of salvation that God would condescend and come and save us. But instead, we see Christ is the hero of the story. That when we tell the story of our sin, we're really highlighting the perfection of our Savior, that he would save people as pathetic and as rebellious and as unlovable as us. So when Asaph is pressing this point to Israel, he's pressing it on us as well. And that is that we would never forget the story of our sin because that story leads to the next arc of the grander story. And that is the second point I want you to see the next arc is that we would retell the story of God's grace, that we would retell the story of God's grace. If the story of sin were the end of the story, then our story would be hopeless. It would be a dead end. Yet Asaph in this psalm goes on to retell the story of God's magnificent grace and his unfailing faithfulness to all generations in fact, the point of Psalm 78 is to exhort the people of God to tell the next generation that God is full of grace and faithful to keep his promises. Asaph very clearly declares the glory of God. Remember, as he's telling this story, he has something important to say. And that thing that is important to say is about the covenant keeping God. Look at verse number four. He says, we will not hide them. We will not hide this teaching from our descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders that he has done. As Asaph declares the grace of God, he also recounts the wrath of God. You see, in Psalm 78, as God shows miracles and kindness to his people, his people sinned against him in unbelief and disobedience and God's response to them is one of judgment for their sin he is angry at their sin in fact it says look at verse number 20 it says when the Lord heard them he was furious his fire broke out against Jacob and his wrath rose against Israel for they did not believe a God or trust in his deliverance Over and over again in this psalm, we see evidence of God's anger and indignation against the wickedness of Israel. And yet, that is not the whole story. God is not simply mad at them, but he turns his wrath to grace. In fact, in the climax of the psalm, verse number 38, it underscores that God is a God of mercy and grace. Look at verse number 38. It says, yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. Now, there were certainly moments recorded in this psalm and in other passages where he was angry and he did pour out judgment, including taking the life of people who sinned against him. And yet this verse reminds us that God was merciful and forgiving and that he withheld the full brunt of his anger and showed them grace upon grace. As Asaph is reminding God's people, he doesn't want them to get caught in simply a story of their sin. But he wants them to move beyond their story of sin to the grander story of God's grace. And he highlights this grace over and over again. In fact, it's been suggested that this psalm was written to show how God's grace was continuing to be faithful to his people even as it moved from Ephraim to Judah and from Saul to David, from Shiloh to Jerusalem. In all of these ways, God's grace was faithful from one generation to another, from one place to another, from one king to another, because God was slow to anger and he was gracious in his dealings with people who did not deserve it. If it were up to you and I and we had asked someone to do something and we had provided everything that they need and then they rejected us, stabbed us in the back and said awful things about us, our response would be to be angry, vindictive, to s- cut them off, to cancel them, to get them out of our life. And yet God over and over again shows his kindness. Look at verse number sixty, or 68. It says, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved, and he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. In spite of all the cycles of Israel's sinfulness and all of their resistance and rebellion, God continued to choose a people for himself from Judah. And this people would ultimately culminate in the greatest person, Jesus Christ. That this psalm ultimately points not simply to teaching a story of Israel, but that we would teach the glory of Christ Jesus, who is the greater David, Though David is here mentioned as the greater king who is replacing Saul from Ephraim, Christ would ultimately replace David. Because again, Christ's grace reaches down to us. Well, Asaph is teaching the grace and glory of God. He wants us to tell this to every generation, he says in verse number four, and again in verse number six. And what are we telling? Again, we're telling that God is God, that his power and his wonder are above and beyond us, and yet they impact us. And Asaph is also teaching the law of God in verse number five, when it says he decreed the statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. I can't help but think of Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema, where Moses instructed the people of Israel to hear, O Israel, to love the Lord your God with your whole heart and your soul and with your entire being, and to teach your children to love the Lord as well. And as Luke read in our call to worship in Deuteronomy 7, we see the faithfulness of God unfolding from generation to generation as they recounted that story of God's grace. In fact, Asaph instructs believers to tell the next generation of God's grace. And why? Look at verse number six. So the next generation would know them Would know what? It's to know the glorious deeds of God. Even the children yet to be born so that they in turn would tell their children. The purpose of Asaph's story is to teach the next generation God's grace amid their ongoing struggle with sin. Then their children and our children as we tell this story are in turn commanded to teach their children about God's never ending grace amid their battles with sin. The story of God's faithfulness continues throughout all generations and every generation of believers must tell their children about God's grace. Yet this story, which includes redemptive history and right doctrine about God and his wrath against sin and his grace towards sinners, must also become a personal story because the story of God's grace is our story too. The story of God's grace is our story too. In your worship guide, there are a couple quotes that I included there from Mike Cosper's book, The Stories We Tell. A book he wrote in 2014. It's becoming a little bit dated because in the book, he deals with how stories from television and movies echo the truth of the gospel. And the reason I say it's getting dated is anytime you write a book that has references to popular culture, the target moves. But through popular TV shows and movies, Cosper masterfully shows how our desire for stories and the stories we tell ourselves shape our lives. All stories, Cosper convincingly argues, ultimately tell one story, and that's God's story. Look at the first quote that I put in there for you. It says, I believe the big story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is so pervasive, so all-encompassing of our world that we can't help but echo it or movements within it when we're telling other stories. And the brunt of Cosper's book is to show how the arc of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation echo in popular stories and television shows and movies that we are familiar with. And this all points us back to Christ over and over again. It's not to say that these stories were written by Christians or with a Christian purpose. But it's to say that as intelligent image bearers of God, even in their sinfulness, the great storytellers of our time can't help but tell God's story. And Cosper goes on to say in the second quote that I have for you, the way we understand our lives, our relationships, our past and our future is all tied up in story. Your past is not only a set of facts, it's also a story you tell. Your future too is a story, but it isn't built upon memory. It's a story of anticipation. Hopes or fears that seem imminent and likely. The point that Cosper is making there is that our lives are interpreted in stories. I mentioned in my introduction that when we meet someone for the first time, we normally exchange stories about one another. When you meet a married couple and you're getting to know them, you hear stories perhaps of how they met, where they were on their first date, where did they get married, how many children do they have, and all of those facts are told in stories. You would be bored, senseless, and confused if someone simply gave you the vital details as factoids and said, we married on this date to this person in this place, and there was no context and no story. You would be wondering what was wrong. Are you talking to a robot or Google's latest AI? But we tell stories because we are caught up in God's story. And as those who follow Jesus Christ, we should never stop telling the story of God's grace that saved us and set us on a new path. In fact, Paul says this in Romans chapter 9 of God's grace. He said, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That is the story of God's electing grace that he is kind to those on whom he chooses to show mercy. And for those of us who have acknowledged our sin and repented of it, turning to Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, trusting him to be our Lord and Savior, this is a story that we should never tire of telling. Yet we don't tell it as those who are special and say, I'm one of the chosen and I'm better than everyone else because I have the gospel. But instead, remember the first arc of the story is that we would remember the story of our sin and that we are people unworthy of salvation, people that had resisted and rebelled against God that Paul said in Colossians were alienated from God. And yet in spite of that, God in his grace through Jesus Christ made our story a story of grace just as he was faithful to Israel, generation after generation, culminating in the personal work of Jesus. He's faithful to us by showing us forgiveness. Well, the third arc that I want you to see in this story, in the introduction of Psalm 78, is that we must repeat the story of God's faithfulness. And these are overlapping arcs that I'm sharing this morning as we remember the story of our sin and we retell the story of God's grace. The third thing is that we repeat the story of God's faithfulness. That's really what this psalm is driving at as the covenant community of Israel is being challenged to tell generation after generation of God's faithfulness. In verse number seven, he gives his purpose. He says, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. All of us like a good story. Some of us are talented storytellers and all of us are dedicated story seekers. Think of YouTube and how many hours we spend on it, looking at things and stories. And the best stories connect us to something larger. In fact, we love when our television series has a larger arc beyond the individual episode that ties all of the episodes together. And the best story of all involves God's faithfulness that ties our lives together. And that story encourages us to put our faith our trust, our confidence, even our belief and our hope in God. When we tell the story of our sin and God's grace, we can't help but retell the story of God's faithfulness and be reminded of his covenant care for us. So as we have the opportunity to tell one generation after another, I wanna challenge you to tell your children the story of your sin and God's forgiving grace. I want to encourage you to tell your grandchildren of God's faithfulness through generation after generation and children and teenagers. I want to challenge you to make the gospel your story, to confess your sin and your unbelief and to follow Jesus and then tell others of this grand story and God's faithfulness which is available to them. Yet this introduction to Psalm 78 also ends with a warning. Asaph encourages faith in God in verse number seven, but he also warns against unbelief in verse number eight. He said, they would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God and whose spirits were not faithful to him. You see, some of Israel's ancestors died in unbelief, they had witnessed the mighty hand of God deliver them from slavery in Egypt. Take them across the Red Sea against all odds. Give them the law of God through Moses twice. He saw, they saw him drive out the Canaanites before them and establish the nation of Israel in the promised land. Yet in spite of all that God did for his people, some of them turned their hearts against him and did not believe. Their unbelief and their unfaithfulness to God serve as a sober warning to us. You see Christians must learn and listen to God's word so that we can teach it to the next generation. This is not simply an intellectual pursuit of accumulating knowledge, but this is a story of our life. And if we become forgetful and neglect the word of God, the next generation will learn from our unfaithfulness and not believe God at all. Asaph confronted this kind of unbelief in his generation. People that eagerly turned to God in a crisis and people who acknowledged God with mere words and then denied him with their lives. Look at verse number 36 and 37. It says, but then they would flatter God with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. You see, in every generation, ours included, Christians or churchgoers, people who acknowledge Jesus with their words and deny him by the way they live, they lead the next generation away from belief in our sin, away from belief in God's grace, and away from belief in God's faithfulness. We live in an era of deconstruction and hashtag exvangelical and all these things as if it's a new concept that people would walk away from God. It's not a new concept at all. Asaph addressed it here in the psalm and it repeats throughout the scripture. This is not a new or growing phenomenon. It's another part of the story that there are some who hear but are are deaf some who see but are blind, and some who are shown Christ and reject him. As we have the opportunity to tell the next generation of Christ, the story of God's faithfulness is our story to tell our children and our grandchildren. In my introduction, I shared the tragic and untimely death of Dee Thielen. She was Miles and Madeline's piano teacher since 2017 and we had a great relationship with her and we look forward to worshiping with her in heaven and eternity. But it was through her faith and her passion for the gospel that she shared the story of her conversion. Not all of us are going to write a tract of our testimony, but all of us ought to be able to tell the story of our sin and God's grace and his faithfulness in such a way that the other generations would be moved to consider the claims of Christ. So I want to conclude with two questions. First, have you located your story in the gospel of Jesus? In other words, are you someone who has placed your trust in Jesus and confessed your sin against God, asking Christ to be your savior? If not, I want to exhort you to trust Christ today because he is ready to save. The second question I want to conclude with is what stories are you telling the next generation? What stories are you telling the next generation? As a church that's recently merged, we have the opportunity to tell one another stories. We can tell stories from Crabapple of 130 years of God's faithfulness to sinners who needed grace. At Grace Church, we have a shorter history of 21 years of stories that we can tell from Grace Church about God's faithfulness. And while we should seek one another out and listen to those stories, let's be careful to tell the next generation not simply the historical facts of how our church came to be Milton Community Church, but let's tell the next generation of our sin and of God's grace and of his unending faithfulness to our generation and our children's generation and our grandchildren's generation and our great-grandchildren's generation and on and on until Christ is glorified in all people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we commit this sermon to you, we ask that you would guide us into your grace and truth. God, we admit that we are storytellers and story lovers. And God, we are in some ways forgetful of the great story that you have told us in the gospel. And God, I pray this morning that we would not be judgmental against the Israelites and say, how crazy could they be to miss that? Because God, the truth is we often miss it too. We struggle sometimes in the shame of our sin and we don't deliver that sin to the grace of Christ and his forgiveness. God, we also sometimes place ourselves in an emotional state of desperation because we only consider you angry at us. And yet, God, the story of your grace is one of pardon and forgiveness, one where the wrath of God has been satisfied through the blood of Christ, who has made a propitiation for our sin. God, I pray that the story we would tell would not be about our misery, it would not be about our might. But the story we would tell would be about our Messiah who has shown covenant faithfulness to sinners like us who need his grace and depend on his faithfulness. And God, as we do that, I pray that you would be pleased to raise up another generation of Christ followers who would tell another generation of Christ followers and that they would see your glory throughout all generations from now to eternity. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.